feeling particularly good one day. Uh, felt like uh, I just needed to love everyone I came in contact with that day. It's a little bit rare, and so wanted to capitalize on that feeling. And uh, throughout the course of that day, tried my best to be sensitive and to be gentle and to be loving and kind to everyone uh, whose path I crossed. And uh, by lunchtime, I had been doing pretty good and uh, decided to go out and grab a bite to eat and uh, wound up at Taco Bell and uh, pulled in to the parking lot, got out of the truck and was walking up to the door and um, about got run down by this large, uh, like Lincoln Town car, you know, 48 feet long. And this lady comes barreling into the parking lot. And uh, I sort of stopped, let her pass. She whips into a parking space. And I continue walking towards the front door, and she exited uh, her vehicle, and she was a little older than me, probably in her 50s or 60s, uh, dressed very, very nice, prim, proper, uh, high heels on, and uh, she began to walk toward the door, the same door that I was walking toward. And she was walking rather briskly, and, uh, which caused me to sort of want to pick up my pace. And, uh, and then I remembered, oh, wait, this is Loving Day. And, uh, and so uh, I thought, you know, if I could beat her to the door, I could hold the door for her. What's more loving than that? And so I picked up my pace, she picked up her pace, and so we're sort of jockeying for position as we're, as we're converging on the door, and sure enough, I got there first. I ran track in, in school, and so I grabbed the door handle, and I opened the door and turned, and she blew by me. It was like standing next to an 18-wheeler on the interstate. She went through that door at like Mach 4, no thank you, no my what a nice young man you are, no I bet you were a boy scout when you were a kid, Not, just straight in, I'm, whoa, and if you've been to Taco Bell you'll know that there's a little airlock there, you go through the first set of glass doors and then uh, there's a 90 degree turn to your left and there's a second set of glass doors and as she made her way through the first uh, set of doors as I held the door, uh, I followed her in, and then it dawned on me. I was not the only one in a loving mood. She was going to get to the second set of doors in order to reciprocate my loving action toward her by holding the door for me. And she grabbed the door, and she pulled the door open, and just as I was about to walk through and say, Thank you, ma'am, she cut me off and went straight through the door. The door slammed. It, I'm like wedged in between the door and the frame. And she's already at the counter placing her order. Now, loving day or not, this is, this, is, this is beyond the call of duty. And so I get in line and I'm standing there and she places her order. I go up. I place my order. And then we find ourselves at the end of the counter waiting for our food, each with our little ticket in hand. And I look over at her, and she's staring straight ahead. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to stare at her. In love. And so I just stood there and stared at her. And she stared straight ahead. And we waited for a couple of minutes, and then the person behind the counter approaches the counter with a tray and calls out a number, number 264. And she springs to the front of the counter there, picks up the tray, and, and had her receipt in her hand, and looks down at it, and notices she's not 264. She was 263. Guess who was 264? 
I said, pardon me, that's my food. And she sort of let go of the tray, the tray hit the counter, and I picked up the tray and was attempting to maneuver around her to get to the drink machine, and I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. This is the day that I was going to be loving. This is the day that I was going to be kind. This was, this was generous day for me. And so something happened that doesn't happen very frequently in my life. You know how sometimes when you just need the right thing to say and you don't have the right thing to say and then you're laying in bed that night and God brings the right thing to say to your mind then, like 12 hours later, he's like, oh, I wish I had thought of that at the moment. Well, I'm standing there about to go by her and God brings the exact thing I need to say to her to my mind. It was like a Holy Spirit moment there in Taco Bell as I'm holding my tray and he just whispered in my ear. And so as I walked by her, I smiled, looked her in the eyes, and with as much grace and kindness and love as I could muster, I said, <laughs> Charlie Brown's best friend Linus puts it this way. He says, I don't mind mankind. It's people I can't stand. I want you to think for just a minute about all the people in your life. I want you to think about all of your friends. I want you to think about all of your acquaintances. I want you to think about all of the strangers that you saw yesterday at Walmart or the grocery store or driving around town. I want you to think about your relatives and your co-workers. I want you to think about your buddies. I want you to think about your foes and about the people who helped you this week. I want you to think about your associates and some contacts that you have. I want you to think about any guests you may have interacted with last week. I want you to think about those that are outside your circle as well as those that are inside your circle. I want you to think about your pals. I want you to think about your family, about your colleagues and about your partners. I want you to think about your accomplices. I want you to think about your allies in life, about your soulmates. I want you to think about your boss maybe your employees. I want you to think about your companions and your adversaries. I want you to think about outcasts. I want you to think about your ancestors and your kindred spirits. I want you to think about your cohorts. I want you to think about your spouse. I want you to think about your son and your daughter. I want you to think about your assistant. I want you to think about your enemies. I want you to think about your neighbors. How in the world are we supposed to interact with all these kinds of people in our lives. How in the world does God expect you and me to go through day after day after day in loving mode? Because the reality is there are some people in your life that, that are easy to love, and there are some people in your life and my life that are just difficult to love. How are we supposed to interact with all these kinds of people 24-7, 365, over the course of 60 or 70 or 80 years. A couple of thousand years ago, someone asked Jesus that very question. The dialogue went like this in Luke 10. It said, just then a religious expert stood up with a question to test Jesus. These religious guys were always trying to test Jesus. He was always pulling one over on them and they never could trap him, but they continued to persist. And he asked Jesus, Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus answered his question with a question. 
And he said, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? And the religious expert said to Jesus, that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and with all your soul and with all your intelligence and with all your being. And that you love your neighbor as well as you love yourself. And Jesus said, good answer. Good answer. You do that and you will live. But then the Bible says, but looking for a loophole, the expert asked Jesus, and just how would you define neighbor? And that, friends, is the $64,000 question for you and me this morning. Because the reality is it's easy to love the lovely people in our lives. It's easy to love the people who love us back. But it's a whole other ball game to love the unlovely people. To love the people that give us a hard time. To love the people that do not reciprocate that love. Who is your neighbor? Who should you love like you love yourself? And are there any loopholes of which we need to be aware? We are in week two of our series called Prove It, during which we're trying to unpack that priority which supersedes every other priority. Remember last week uh, I quoted C.S. Lewis. He said, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. But put second things first and we lose both first things and second things. Our first thing is to love God and love people. It's our first thing not because that's what we want to be our first thing. It's our first thing because that's what Jesus said was our first thing. Jesus said your first thing, your priority, that which supersede everything else in your life is to love God and love people. To love God, he said, is the greatest commandment. And a second is just like it. In other words, a second is just as important as the first. And that's to love your neighbor as yourself. This is that which we cannot afford to get wrong. This is that which we cannot afford to miss. This is that which we cannot afford to allow to be sidelined or crowded out of our lives. But how do we do it? How do we prove that this is the most important thing to New Community Church? How do you prove that this is the most important thing to you? How do I prove that this is the most important thing to me? Because Jesus said... If you will do this, if you will love God and love people, he said, you will fulfill all the law. He said, if that will be your first thing, if that will be your priority, he said, then you will live. You will be doing good. Last week we talked about how the Bible says that the only way to prove we love God is to obey God. There's really no other way. I mean, we can mouth the words, we can go through the motions, but when it comes down to it, the only way you and I can prove our love, our devotion to our Heavenly Father is by obeying Him. And when we do what He teaches, when we obey Him, when we walk and live and act and think as Jesus did, and the Bible says everything else follows, we will seek after God when we obey God. We will trust God. When we obey God, we will follow him and hunger for him and talk to him and talk about him to others and listen to him. We will thirst for him 
when we obey him. We will abide in him and be content in him and find joy in him and give back to him and serve him and spend time with him. We will turn to him when we obey him. We will, the Bible says, love God when we decide to obey God. Love God, love people. And in so doing, turn the world upside down. I don't know about you, but what we talked about last week seems to be a whole lot easier than what we're talking about this morning. Loving God seems to be a whole lot easier than loving people. Maybe it's just me. But it seems to be easier to love God who is both loving and lovely. He is gracious and he is kind and he is just and he is gentle and he is trustworthy. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us extravagantly. He loves us generously, the Bible says. And to reciprocate that love by obeying him, to reciprocate his perfect love for us, is just so inviting. But people, people can be unloving and unlovely. People can be cruel and unkind and harsh and unfair. People can be self-centered and disappointing. People can be mean. People can be hard to love sometimes. So when this Pharisee, this religious expert, goes to Jesus and asks him the question, how would you define neighbor? He was actually making reference to a well-known debate that Pharisees and teachers of the law and rabbis engaged in on a regular basis. This was in Jesus' day. And they spent a whole lot of time and energy talking about that very question. Who's my neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Who should I love as I love myself? It all went back to a passage in the book of Leviticus that says this. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but rather love your neighbor as yourself. And so the Pharisees would make these long lists with two columns. And at the top of the left column, they would have the word neighbor, and they would list everyone in their lives that they would consider a neighbor. Everyone in their lives that they would consider loving as they love themselves. And then they would have a second column to the right, and it would say, not neighbor. And they would list everyone that they would not consider their neighbor. This is the loophole. Everyone that they thought that they could get away with not loving as they loved themselves. And so this was the debate. This was the discussion. And it went on day in and day out. They would have to figure out who's in the neighbor column in my life and who's in the not neighbor column in my life. And so they would just think through it. You know, they would say, okay, what about my brother? Is my brother my neighbor? Well, obviously the passage in Leviticus says, yes, your brother is your neighbor. So they would have to put their brother in the neighbor column. What about other Jews? Well, yeah, of course other Jews would be my neighbor because Jews are just like me. I'm a Jew, they're a Jew, we're insiders. We're a part of the same group. So other Jews would be neighbors, so they would put Jews in that category. Well, what about people who weren't Jews who converted to Judaism? Should I consider them neighbor? And they would say, you know, I used to would not consider them, but now that they're Jews, yeah, I'm going to consider them my neighbor. And so they would put converts to Judaism. And so they would just go down through all the people that they could come up with and put them in the neighbor category or the not neighbor category. And there was lots of discussion and lots of debate 
And there was some disagreement as to who would fall into the neighbor category. But there were certain people among whom the rabbis and the teachers and the experts in the law never disagreed about their being in the not-neighbor category. There were certain people that fell in the not-neighbor category on every single one of their lists. And these were Gentiles. These were people like most of you and me. These were people who were pagan. These were people who were far from God. These were people who in some cases were heretics. These were people who were Samaritans. These were people who were not like them. And they made the not-neighbor category on every single person's list. So the scene is Jesus teaching and the experts and teachers of the law listening to him teach and the disciples were there and a crowd had gathered. And so what these experts in the law want to know about Jesus, remember Jesus is a rabbi, he's a teacher. They want to know, hey Jesus, who's on your list? Who makes your neighbor list and who makes your not neighbor list? Remember, they're trying to trap him. And so if they can get his list to sort of disagree with some of their lists, now they've got cause for accusation. So to answer their question, Jesus, in characteristic fashion, tells them a story. Now there's something fundamental about the technique that Jesus uses to tell this story. It's sort of called a three-person rule. There are three main characters in this story that Jesus tells. And in this kind of three-person story, the first person does something. And then the second person does the same identical thing. So now you've got a pattern. The first person did this, and now the second person does this. Well, the third person in these kind of three-person stories, he will do the exact opposite of what the first and second person does. He will do the exact opposite of the pattern that had been established. He's the surprise. He's the punchline. We do this in our society, don't we? If I were to say to you, an Irishman, a Dutchman, and a German walk into a bar, what are you thinking? You're thinking, oh, that crazy German. He's going to be the surprise. He's going to be the punchline. He's going to be the joke. A redhead, a brunette, and a blonde are having a conversation. A minister, a Boy Scout, and the president are on an airplane. We have the same kind of three-person jokes, three-person stories that Jesus had in his day. So Jesus tells this three-person story. Luke chapter 10, if you have a Bible, beginning in the 30th verse, he says these words. He says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. And the robbers stripped the man of his clothes and they beat him and then they went away, leaving him half dead. Now you have to understand, everyone listening to this story would have had an immediate snapshot come into their mind because this story was taken directly from the headlines of the news in that day. This would have not been unlike you picking up the newspaper this afternoon and seeing the headlines about something that occurs in Elizabeth City or New York City or somewhere else in the country or even somewhere else in the world. You have an immediate picture. You have an immediate understanding of what's going on. In Jesus' day, they would have exactly understood immediately what was going on because this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was one of the most dangerous stretches of road on the planet in that day. Jerusalem 
found itself about uh, 2,600 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea was about 1,300 feet below sea level. And so in the course of about 17 miles, which was the length of this road, you had a drop in elevation of about 3,600 feet. This was the main road. But it was the most dangerous road just about in the world. In the 5th century, it was still called the Bloody Way because of all the crime that was perpetrated along this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. In some places, it was so narrow that it was single file. You had to actually walk between two cliffs of rock in order to navigate this road. And there were nooks and crannies everywhere. It was the perfect road for robbers and thieves and bandits and people with ill intent to hide out and take advantage of travelers. And so the minute Jesus begins telling this story, everyone knows the road, everyone knows the situation. They had read countless stories about this before. Maybe some of them had even experienced it before. It was well known. The 31st verse, Jesus introduces the first person on the road. It says, a priest happened to be going down this same road, and when he saw the man, the man who had been stripped and the man who had been beaten and the man who had been left on the side of the road half dead, when he saw the man, the Bible says, the priest passed by on the other side. So this priest is the first person to come up on the robbed and beaten man, but he passes to the other side of the road so that he doesn't have to deal with him. Why wouldn't the priest... Why wouldn't a man who's religious, why wouldn't a man who professes faith in God not come to the aid of this beaten, robbed man along the side of the road? Well, numbers of reasons. One, obviously, was it's a bad road. It's a dangerous part of town. This is a bad neighborhood. You don't want to go there after dark. You don't want to go there by yourself. Bad things can happen. Maybe that's why. Oftentimes, robbers would act as though they had been beaten up in order to solicit help from someone else, and then a whole gang of them would jump them. And so maybe the priest was just sort of protecting himself and watching out for himself, just being conservative, and, and so he crosses the other side of the road and passes by. Maybe it was because he served in the temple. And as one who served in the temple, he handled tithes and he led worship and he offered sacrifices. And as such, he had to remain ceremonially clean at all times. He had to be in a state of ritual purity. In fact, the number one written law for a priest was, you touch a corpse, you are now unclean. And he had to go through this lengthy, drawn-out process that lasted seven days for him to become clean again. And he thought, you know, this man here is half dead. You know, if I go over there and give him help, and touch him and he dies, guess what? Now I'm unclean. I can't perform my priestly duties. The number one oral law for these priests, they had a written law, and then they had their oral law that they sort of put together themselves was, touch a Gentile and you become unclean. Touch someone not like me and I become unclean. And so... The priest has to discern as he's walking along the road, is this man a Jew or is he a Gentile? He can't ask him because Jesus had already told us the man was beaten so badly he was half dead. You realize that the, the term half dead in the Greek language is actually a technical term? He was actually half dead. It's actually describing the last phase of life just prior to someone dying. 
sort of a loose association uh, you can find in, in a movie uh, known as The Princess Bride. Maybe you've seen that movie. The hero, Wesley, is thought to be dead at one point, so they bring him to Miracle Max, who says, oh, no, 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 he's not all dead. He's only mostly dead. If he's mostly dead, he's still a little alive. And so this man on the side of the road was half dead. He was mostly dead. He was in the last phase of life, but he was still a little alive. But the priest couldn't take that chance because if he was a Gentile and he touched him, he's unclean now. Another way to distinguish an Israelite or a Jew from a Roman or another Gentile was by their dress. But Jesus had covered his base in this story because Jesus said the man had been stripped of his clothes. So the man has no clothes on. So the Jew... The priest passing by can't discern whether this is a Jew or a Gentile. He can't ask the man. The man's half dead. He can't discern from the clothes the man's wearing because the man's not wearing any clothes. This story is brilliant on Jesus' part. The priest can't know whether or not touching this man, helping this man, coming to this man's aid will defile him or not defile him. He can't know. All the priest can know at this particular point in the story is that this man is just another human being in need. Enter person number two. Verse 32. The Bible says, So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite would have been sort of an assistant to the priest in the temple. So some of the same stipulations that were true for the priest would have been true for the Levite. And the Levite responds exactly as the priest had responded. And this would have been totally expected. Why? Because this is a three-person story. The first person's going to do something, and the second person's going to do the same thing, and then the third person's going to come along, and he's going to do something different. And the way the story always worked for these Jews was... They were listening to this, and the first person was always a priest, and the second person was always a Levite, and the third person, the one who gets it right, was always an ordinary Jewish citizen. It was always someone just like them. It was always someone who wasn't a priest and wasn't a Levite. He or she had no formal ties to the temple. They were just good, God-fearing Jewish people. They were a layman, a member of the Amharats, the people of the land, just ordinary citizens. And so the whole crowd is sitting there, and, 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 and they know what's coming. There's a priest, there's a Levi, and then there's this third person. And this third person comes up, and they know, they know how the story's going to go. This third person, just like them, is going to do the right thing. And they're all going to cheer for the third person. And then Jesus drops the bomb. Jesus makes the third person not a Jew, not an Israelite citizen. He makes the third person a Samaritan. He makes the third person a dirty word that a Jew would not have even used the language to describe. The Samaritans were the mortal enemies of the Israelites. Jesus is not telling the story the way the story is supposed to be told. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when the Samaritan saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and he poured on oil and wine. 
And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. With one part of the story, Jesus manages to tick off every single person listening to the story. This is not how the story was supposed to go. The story was supposed to go, priest, Levi, someone just like me, so that I could walk away feeling good about myself because that's what I would have done. But instead, Jesus replaces me and you with a Samaritan with someone who was considered unclean, with someone who was considered far from God, with someone who was considered outside, with someone who was considered not like us. And then he turns to the religious experts and he answers their question with a question. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who had fallen into the hands of robbers. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Remember the initial question. And who is my neighbor exactly? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, notice he doesn't even say the word Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say that dirty word. He says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. You got to love that story. Because it forces us to ask ourselves the same question that Jesus asked these religious experts. Who's your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who in your relational world does Jesus say to you, I want you to love them as you love yourself? Who is your neighbor and what are you doing to love them? You know, several months ago we began a a ministry initiative slash capital campaign called 2020 for 1010. And for the next two and a half years, We're asking God to help us as a church and to help every one of us who make up this church to develop a 2020 vision, a 2020 perspective as to what it looks like to love God and love people. We're asking Him to help us see clearly how He sees that first priority. And so we sort of started this a a few months ago. And it's going to carry us through until April of 2012. And in the process of, of us asking God to help us see people as He sees them, in the process of us asking Him to help us see Him, His Father, as we should, we're attempting to engage and reach 1,010 people. 
on His behalf. We're attempting to find 1,010 people who are neighbors and help them engage with God, help them engage with His church, help them engage in this adventure that many of you are engaged in. Because we believe that loving God and loving people is the most important thing we can do. It's not the only thing we do. It's just the most important. It's the first thing. It's the greatest commandment. It's that which supersedes everything else. So who is your neighbor? Who in your relational world needs your help right now? Who do you know that needs to engage with Christ? Who do you know that needs to engage with a local church? Who do you know who is far from God, who desperately needs God? Who do you work with? Who do you live with? Who do you play with? Who needs to hear the truth of the gospel? Which is that God in His grace has sent a Savior to us. That we might have our sins forgiven. That we might experience life to the fullest. And that we might be assured of eternity with the one who loves us so much. Who do you know who needs to be encouraged or maybe challenged or loved or cared for or confronted? Who do you know who needs to engage with God? Who do you know who needs to engage with a biblically functioning community? And I just want to ask you this morning, will you help us reach your neighbors? Will you help New Community Church reach the people in your relational world who need to hear the gospel? who need to be part of a local church and experience biblical community, who need to engage in what God is doing in the world. Will you love your neighbors enough to invite them to join you here? Will you love your neighbors enough to help them engage in what God is doing here? That's one way you can prove your love. It's one way I can prove my love. Because it's real easy to say, let's love God and love people. It's real easy to sit back and say, yeah, I'm a part of a church, and the church is about reaching people and, and loving them and, and loving God, and, and the church is going to do that. But you and I are the church. It's going to happen when you and I decide to engage our neighbors it's going to happen when you and I decide to engage those people in our relational world. Our friends and our acquaintances and our relatives and our co-workers and our buddies and our foes and our assistants and our adversaries and our family and our colleagues and our partners and our allies and our soulmates and our kindred spirits and our sons and our daughters and our spouse and our enemies and our neighbors. 
And so the question I ask you this morning and ask myself this morning is, is will you love your neighbor enough to help them engage with God? Will you love people enough to ask God to use you to reach those in your community, in your relational sphere? So I'm going to pray this morning, and and we're going to wrap up. But I'm going to ask God to do that. I'm going to ask Him to do that in each of us. Because the deal is, New Community Church is not a place for insiders. It's not just a place for the people that look like you and me, and think like you and me, and dress like you and me, and act like you and me. New Community Church... It's part of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is for people. It's for our neighbors. And so I'm just going to ask God to give you and me some boldness this week to begin engaging the people in our lives that He has brought into our lives to help them find their way to Him through His church. So pray with me. Father, We understand that loving you is a big deal. And we understand that loving people is a big deal as well. We understand that Jesus said this was the greatest commandment. We understand that this is to be priority one. We understand that this is the first thing for the church and for those of us who profess faith in your Son. And now we humbly ask that you help us do that. That you help us love you by obeying you and that you help us love people by inviting and serving and caring for and engaging in what you're doing. I pray that you would give us an unusual spirit of boldness this week and in the weeks to come to just talk with the people in our world, to just engage them in conversation, at the very least just to invite them to be part of what you're doing here that has changed us. May you help us be bold as we love the people that you have brought into our lives as we love our neighbors, as ourselves. And we pray that you would be honored by our willingness to take you at your word in this. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Have a great afternoon. See you next Sunday.